Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Marianne will be speaking with Gina Lin, who is the founder of New Life Sanctuary, which has a very special mission to rescue and rehabilitate animals from laboratories. As soon as I heard about New Life, which has been around for a while, I just was not familiar with it. That I, I wanted I wanted this interview because I think it's such a fascinating idea. Now, if you hear noise in the background, <laughs> it's Rose and I can't stop her. So just put up with it. Right. She's kind of walking around in a very dramatic fashion. Uh, anyhow, this week on the bonus segment, you'll be continuing your discussion with Gina. Yes. As always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get the link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you are not a member of the Flock, this would be such a great time to join if you can afford it. And I know a lot of people can't. If you're one of those who can, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Or this is a really, really great time to take the alternative and bargain route of joining for $100 a year because, well, you tell us, Jasmine. Because between now and the end of the year, all donations are being tripled thanks to some very fancy and fabulous donors. All donations up to $20,000 are being tripled. So as I've mentioned before, we do the majority of our fundraising for the entire year in December. In fact, in the last two weeks of December. So I hope that you uh, are able to join the flock. We have some really great perks that we offer. We've been announcing this every week. Oh, that's that's Birdie, the Chihuahua. <laughs> There's a lot of background noise in this episode. Sorry. Uh, and... The fact that the donations are tripled, like I've, we've just been saying it every week, but seriously, it's holy nice. moly. Yeah. And we need it. I mean, I just saw this awful piece today in the Wall Street Journal. It was just so backwards and messed up. And I just thought, thank God we have our hen house. We have like this pro-animal, vegan, friendly, responsible, LGBTQ-run, women-founded nonprofit that is giving you media that speaks to the heart of what's going on behind closed doors for animals. And to get us through this year, we've been increasing the perks that we offer to our our flock members. We have these Zoom calls every Friday at 4 p.m. And we've really been enjoying those. So I hope you can join us. We have our bonus content that you get every single week if you're a member of the flock. And we've got the flock Facebook group. And if you make a donation of $100, I will also send you a personalized video. <laughs> and we're almost as big as the Wall Street Journal. Very close. Very we're good. closing in on them at any moment. Well, sort of. We'll go with that. So before we get to the interview, uh, it, it, it's been a wonderful gift-filled, fried food-filled last eight days. Well, I guess more than eight days because of when this airs. But it was Hanukkah this past week, and I celebrate Hanukkah and Christmas and I, I and anything, any other holiday you can get your fingernails into, especially if there's fried food involved. <laughs> and there's so many vegan versions of the fried foods available that are iconic for Hanukkah foods, the latkes, the jelly donuts, insert everything else. A lot of the Hanukkah gelt is, is vegan just by default. Add the extra layer and look for the ethically sourced slavery free chocolate and you have got yourself a celebration. Are we going to sing the latke song? Oh, yeah. Let, let's do it. Latkes, 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 we made them out of oppression, and since I cannot eat them, I go into a depression. But of course, we can eat your latkes and lots of people's latkes because you don't have to put an egg in them. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's, uh, you know, Mayim Bialik, who is, of course, a pretty cool vegan, 
she has Mayim's Vegan Table is her cookbook, and she has veganized all of these recipes. She also recently blurbed uh, and shared about my book, which is now out, called The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. So uh, I, I was very excited when Blossom shared it on her Instagram. She was on our hen house. Once. Excited. You were like, you were beyond yourself. Well, you're, you're toning it down a lot, just like you were when we, when we had her on. Yeah, yeah. Jasmine wanted to do, we did the interview together, which is what we used to do when we first started. And Jasmine uh, wanted to take the lead on it because, you know, I was really a little too old to watch Blossom. I might've seen it once. I don't know. And uh, it was Blossom was Jasmine's childhood hero. So we started the interview and you became so completely tongued. I've never heard you tongue tied before yeah. or since, but I had to take over and, and do the interview. Yeah, it was crazy. Well, thanks for that, <laughs> for telling the story and genuinely for helping me out. Anyhow, uh, the, she was one of our many guests. I think over the years we've had thousands of guests because we used to do two interviews on every episode and now we do longer form single interviews on most episodes. But anyhow, we've had like thousands of guests on. And it's 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 really inspiring to look back at who our guests have been over the last 11 years. Though, you know, sometimes we'll realize someone's not, no longer vegan or we'll realize that someone's been me too and they were on our show or, oh my God, they're COVID deniers. How could we have had them on? But, you know, we've had thousands of people on. If you look at them in a pie chart, that is a very small sliver of the people who we've had on. And it, it just does bring up the whole issue of like what if we had known this beforehand and where is the line that we draw that we wouldn't have somebody as a guest? And I mean, in particular, we have had people on who are not vegan um, because they have written a book or have a particular expertise, either with usually either with wildlife or with companion animal issues, because as we all know, a lot of people in those movements mm -hmm. are, are not necessarily vegan, but they might have something really interesting to share. But it's always a tough decision. Right. And I do want to say that's very infrequently, like 99.8% of the time our guests are vegan. And every now and then someone is not vegan because we're having them on to discuss something uh, that's not farmed animal related. And we try very hard to find someone who's doing that work, but who is vegan. And sometimes it's not possible. And we're, we're pretty transparent about that on those episodes. And again, it's few and far between. Maybe it happened like once in the last year. Uh, but but it is it is something that comes up for us a lot because, you know, you could have someone who's not vegan who has this information that we would really like to share with you and with us. We could also have a vegan on who is, yeah, they don't consume animals, but that doesn't mean that their other behavior is non-oppressive. So. Well, if they've been me too, we're probably not going to have them on. Well, we would never have them on again, but like sometimes... Oh, yeah. We don't like subtract interviews. Like we have... Can you please send us a list of every woman you've ever dated or worked with <laughs> in the past so we could interview all of them before you come on and we're just going to put together an assessment of whether or not you are... I think we should actually do that. Okay, we'll start doing that. <laughs> Jen, if you're listening... We can clean up this movement in please, a minute. Please put that on the agenda for 2021 vision boarding. <laughs> anyway, uh, so you, you had an interesting kind of way of looking at it. Well, I don't know whether it's interesting or not, but it did occur to me the other day. Uh, this has something to do with Jane Austen, who was not vegan. Don't get your hopes up on that. But I love Jane Austen books. I'm sure many people listening do do as well because a lot of people in the world love her books and and uh, Pride and Prejudice and Sense you know the movies and the whole the whole nine yards and they're very obviously well written and they're very insightful about 
personal relationships. You know, I love a romance novel, but these are these actually are the I don't know whether the original, but they are romance novels, at, but at a much much higher level. But I love them. All right, this is where I'm going with this. Like the whole world that Jane Austen wrote about and and wrote in and all of her characters inhab- inhabited was built on on slavery and colonialism. I mean, that's the reason they had their, oh, he has 50,000 a year. Can you believe it? And yeah, you kind of have to either not know that or just put it aside to enjoy the book. And, and like, where do you draw that line? And it just makes me feel, you know, I was thinking about that and it just occurred to me that it's kind of the same thing as having a guest on who's really interesting and passionate about wildlife and and you just have to ignore the fact that they don't get the big picture, that they don't really share my my attitude towards animals. Uh, only only some animals. Actually, this reminds me of a of a fight we had with your brother when I, the oh, first God. day I met him. When he, it was the stupidest fight, which you know is not the usual. <laughs> I have to say. Um, but it was all about whether you could call somebody an animal activist because because they were a companion animal activist. And we, we, we must have argued for, because I just couldn't give up, because I took the position that, that you know, you're not really an animal activist unless you get it about all the animals. Right. And he took the opposite position, that as long as you care about what some animals, it's fine. Yeah, like, all right. Fun. Yeah, I, I shouldn't be repeating this because it's boring as shit. But, no, but, uh, it's basically, I mean, it, yeah, it. It, it does bring up this, like, I'm sure everybody among you struggles with this all the time. What do you do with people who are so passionate about some animals and don't get it about the rest? It's just so weird. People are so weird. And 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 when we're doing the, you know, research for those episodes and, you know, doing the questions, I like, let's just add in it at the end. Like, well, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, by the way, before you go. So can you explain why you're a hypocrite? <laughs> like, I don't but, think. But like we could ask that, but obviously we don't bring people on to be rude to them. Right. And and I don't like to ask them anything about whether they're vegan or not, because that just gives them an excuse to, like, trot out their nonsense about why they're not vegan. And, you know, their defense, I, I, you people don't have to listen to that. So it's always a struggle. Right. Yeah. yeah. Why doesn't well, everybody just stop eating animals? It, does, it, it reminds me a little bit of, like, how I really want to be a person in this world who enjoys the things that I want to enjoy that are available to me. And I don't want to always let like the the one oppressive piece of that get in the way of my enjoyment like if there's a movie and there's a scene where they're wearing fur or something like I still want to watch the movie because it's like a great movie that otherwise interests me where do you draw the line or you know we've discussed in the past baking competitions which I don't watch but mostly because they don't interest me I know you watch them and you just kind of veganize them in your head I I watch the the British the the, yeah Whatever it is, British baking, baking show, right. <laughs> whatever it is, the Great yeah, Oppressive I watch, Br- I British Breaking. Show. I don't know why, because it gives me anxiety, because I can't stand it when people's cakes fall. And I, I mean, obviously the milk, I can just put that sort of aside and assume it's soy milk, even though it's not. I don't know why I can watch that. Why well, I can't watch like shows that have meat, and occasionally they have a meat thing, and I just skip that part of the episode well i i do with like queer eye for example almost always except for i think one time which was when they were featuring some young woman with the sunshine party but that was the only time that their cooking segment featured vegan food and i just fast forward it 
So the point is, I love the show Queer Eye. I love Jonathan Van Ness. I love to watch the... Anyway, the, the cooking portion of that show is so bad yeah. that it's un- it would be unwatchable even if I was an omnivore. So kind of bringing it back to the point here, I think that we need to exist in the world and find where our lines are. And I think it's okay if they're in different places from the other person. But when it comes to our hen house, like I said, 99.98% of the time we're going to be having vegans. And occasionally there's some very specific reason why why we're not. And it's and I can guarantee that there was a very lengthy discussion before that happened. We don't go into that uh, without our eyes open. And also, I just want to mention, we're not having this conversation on this episode because there is any question about whether our guest is vegan. She's She's vegan. She is passionately vegan. Right. So sort of switching gears for a moment, I, I, you know, because it was Hanukkah, one of the gifts I got was a a new tarot deck. And, you know, I I believe that you can opt into magical thinking. And I I sort of like to play around with things like that. So I, I got this new tarot deck because it's like a queer deck and the one that I have is a very straight deck. So I was doing a reading and uh, on someone else and I, I did a, you know, it was fine. Like the, the, we found meaning in it. And then I did a reading on myself <laughs> and it was so bad. Like every card in it was like, you're making terrible decisions. You're going to self-isolate and go in and go into deep shame about the fact that you're ruining your life. I think you need a new deck. And, and then I was <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm going to pick another card about this. And so I did a single card draw and it was the death card, which I know doesn't necessarily mean like it's not necessarily bad. But it was it, it, it was so funny to me how how bad it was. But the reason that I'm even bringing this up is not to tell you that I'm a terrible tarot reader, but I am. But that's not why. The reason I bring it up is because one of the things I did get from it is like, uh, I keep putting myself in these professional situations where I have to like self-advocate in these super weird ways that should be obvious. And I was getting from this, like, you have to change these patterns and you have to stop taking these kinds of roles. And it's nothing I talk about here. It's not kinder beauty at all. I love that job. It's freelance work I do that I don't talk about in general. And I started to think, well, if I want to make these changes, then I have to actually make them. I'm not going to wake up one day and like these these changes to my 41 years of patterns will have just automatically shifted. We have to do the hard work. We have to do like the self-introspection, the shifting of ourselves, and we have to make our make changes possible. I was telling you this, and of course, you being you, you brought that sort of into activism and how we need to step up. We need to each step up in our own lives with our own our own advocacy and our own definitions of what leadership means. Yeah, I guess I was thinking about leadership. I wasn't sure how it related to tarot, but I'm sure there is a way since everything could be related to tarot. And, and it, But I was really thinking about this past year or the past four years. And I just think that the one thing that we can all take from this year is that leadership matters, that that it really makes a huge difference who is in charge. I, I don't think that I've ever really thought that as strongly as I do now. You know, it's frightening. Like the wrong person in charge can mean some very, very, very bad things happen and people are led astray and untruth takes hold. And, you know, we were watching To Be or Not To Be, which is that old movie about uh, a, a theater troupe in Poland that takes place during the war and, uh, you know, is a pre, 
kind of the beginnings of the Holocaust and and just it was scarier to me than it's ever been before. Like the Holocaust seems so far away mm-hmm. and in the past and 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 it just seems more possible now than it ever did before. But anyway, bringing this back to activism, uh, which is what you were talking about vis-a-vis your tarot. I, and, you know, something I've experienced in talking to so many animal people, we don't tend to be like dynamic, loudmouth, natural activists. Some of us are. And uh, that's all to the good, though I guess my use of the word loudmouth is a little pejorative. <laughs> but, but, you know, we need all personalities. But there's a hell of a lot of introverts in this movement, hell of a lot of people who don't like move forward to take the helm. And, and it's so important that we try to do it anyway, even though it doesn't come naturally, because I think that we have established that, you know, it's frequently people who aren't, quote unquote, natural leaders who are better then the people who, you know, a lot of people who take leadership positions are driven by ego mm-hmm. and uh, by insanity and all mm-hmm. sorts of crazy things. And so so I tend to think that the best characteristic in a leader is not thinking that they should lead. So if you don't think you should lead, you need to be a leader. <laughs> just just take put that in your hat yeah. um, and, and live with that because it, it's the quietest person in the background who doesn't like to speak up. Who might have the most to say? We were talking about that last week at the Flock Friday Zoom call. And uh, Jen mentioned that when she recently did Encompass's DEI Institute that our hen house was one of the sponsors of, and I did the one before she did it, it was actually stated at the beginning of the training that like, we are going to sit in the silences in between people being called on. And we're not going to fill those silences because we know that like a lot of people, it's not their instinct to necessarily speak up first. And so I tried to do that at the Flock Friday call with like that inspiration. And I'm not sure I succeeded because I get really uncomfortable when there's space. Everybody does. It's yeah. really, really hard. Try being a teacher. Like it's just painful. Yeah. Like you throw the question out there and they just all stare at you yeah. and they stare at you yeah. and they stare at you. And eventually one of them gives up and raises their hand. <laughs> <laughs> and thus is teaching. They, you have to like wait them out because the silence is making them stressed out too. So you have to yeah. wait them out and not be as stressed out as they are. Right. Yeah. So anyway, part of being a, a, a safe and inclusive movement is is to make sure that we have room for everyone. And that includes the introverts. Okay, so let's move to talking about vegan businesses. Our Hen House Supports Vegan Businesses is a program we started early this year because so many businesses were failing. And so we shout out some that have come across our radar, either because we tried them or because you told us. You can fill out the form at ourhenhouse.org slash vegan businesses if you have a vegan business you want us to shout out. Oh, and we always make sure to feature at least one Black-owned business. So today we're going to start with Zoe's Vegan Delight, Zoe's Vegan Delight is an amazing woman black-owned vegan catering business in Greenbelt, Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C. Her delicious food serves both your needs and your appetite, all without using animal products or GMO ingredients. Chef Zahorat Coates grew up in Israel and was raised in a vegan household. When she moved to the U.S., she started Zoe's Vegan Delight to offer up delicious, healthy vegan meals. Her menu includes savory dishes, raw cuisine, desserts, smoothies, fresh juices, and salads. So offers catering services, meal plans, private cooking lessons, and cooking demos to those in the D.C. area. 
She's also been making her own beautifully crafted colorful masks throughout the pandemic, and those are available for shipping. Check out Zoe's Vegan Delights on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Zoe's Vegan Delight, and it's it's uh, Z-O-E-S, Vegan Delight. So follow them and show them some love. They can really use it right now, even if you're not in the D.C. area. We're also asking people to follow some of the businesses that we're shouting out, regardless of whether they're local to you, because that helps businesses too. And we always include the links in the show notes for each episode. And our second business is one you can support, literally support wherever you are. That's Rebel Cheese, which is a vegan deli based in Austin, Texas, because they ship vegan cheese gift baskets across the U.S. So well, that's a timely idea. Uh, your friends and family will love you for this. I would certainly love you for this. And Rebel Cheese makes artisan vegan cheese that tastes as good, if not better than dairy. I'm sure it's better than Dining isn't available currently at their deli, but they still offer their full menu to go if you do happen to be in the Austin area with cheese plates, vegan meats, made-to-order sandwiches, soups and salads, plus hard-to-find vegan gourmet grocery items from around the world. You can check them out at uh, rebelcheese.com. Yes. Oh. And now to the interview. By the way, I was doing this Instagram Live the other day on Veg News for Fabulous Vegan, and like all any of the people who who were joining us virtually wanted to talk about was cheese. It's like, that's what people are so passionate about. Anyway, I digress to the interview. Gina Lynn has dedicated her entire life to animal advocacy and activism. After years of organizing protests and conferences and marches and a whole lot of other things, co-producing an internationally distributed grassroots animal rights magazine and enduring the stress of government harassment due to being known as an organizer Gina founded New Life Animal Sanctuary back in 2008 to rescue and rehabilitate animals no longer used in laboratories, including dogs and rats and pigs, rabbits, mice, pigeons, guinea pigs, goats, cats, hamsters, and the first and only, to their knowledge, llama. Gina will be joining Marianne right after this. Greetings, everybody. This is Jasmine Singer, and I wanted to make sure you knew about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Look good, feel good, and do good in 30 days. Brand new from Hachette in December 2020. Want to be fabulous? Go vegan. Maybe you're interested in it for the food. Maybe it's the animals, or maybe climate change has got you thinking. Whatever your reason, maybe you don't quite know where to start. After all, doesn't going vegan mean you have to give up tasty snacks and cool shoes and a sense of humor in your leather couch? Nope, nope, no way. And well, eventually. Covering everything from nutrition, you will get enough protein, promise, to dating, vegans have better sex, it's true. To fitness, you wanna lift a car over your head, sure. I am joining with the team at Veg News to bust all the myths and giving you all the facts about a plant-based lifestyle. With 30 easy recipes to get you started, the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan will help you adopt a vegan lifestyle that's better for you, the animals, and the planet. And what's more fabulous than that? Get your copy today wherever books are sold or go to jasminesinger.com slash fabulous. Remember, there's no E on Jasmine. It's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R dot com slash fabulous. The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Welcome to our hen house, Gina. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm really glad to have you here because what you're doing is 
so interesting and something I really want to know more about. Just to give people kind of an introduction, just tell us about New Life's Animal Sanctuary's mission. Our mission is to rescue and rehabilitate animals retired from laboratories. And where are you located? In Lake Elsinore, California. And just to set the scene a little bit, who are you currently caring for? The species, the numbers? Give us a picture. I believe we have 17 different species. We have llamas, goats, donkeys, too many cows, pigs, uh, sheep, chickens, a, a pony, dogs, cats, rabbits, rats, turkeys, ducks, and peafowl. And a pheasant. Cool. A pheasant. It's always nice to have a pheasant in the home. Yes. Oh, and a guinea fowl. And two guinea fowl. So do you do adoptions or do you just care for the animals? We do adoptions based on the species and based on the, the potential homes. We're not, we're not trying to keep every animal here forever, but, um, you know, it just depends. So as you mentioned, your mission is an unusual one because you're not rescuing farm animals. You're not rescuing dogs and cats. You're rescuing animals from laboratories. And it's really hard to imagine laboratories being willing to let the animals go. And I know you pointed out on your website, this is everybody's first question. So right. how does that work? Has that changed? How do you get the laboratories to give you animals? It has changed a lot. When we first started and, and when we put that on our website, at that time, we were like, we don't know if this is going to work. A, a, kind of an interesting aside, my partner at the time and I actually went around interviewing laboratories to ask if they would be willing to do this because we didn't even think that we could raise money to start it because we thought people are just going to be like, no way, that can't, their labs are never going to give up their animals. So we went around, like we did our independent research, went around to labs interviewing them to ask if this is something that they would do so that we could then tell potential donors, they've said they'll do this, but we need the money to create it. And so it's worked. I mean, it's been different, different situations. Like often it's somebody who knows someone inside the lab and they maybe just mention like, we have a bunch of rats. If we had a home for them, we, we'd release them, but otherwise they're going to be euthanized. And then maybe that person has heard of us. You know, it's just, it's usually kind of that kind of thing, like word of mouth, someone's friends with someone inside the lab and happens to have heard of us and happens to know that they have these animals that, that they may be willing to release. And we figure it out. You know, it kind of made me think of this situation. I don't know whether this is still the situation because there are so many fewer race tracks with greyhounds. I am going somewhere with this. But it <laughs> used to be back in the day that greyhound advocacy groups just had to completely stay away, well, actually from advocacy, because they couldn't maintain their relationships with the with the racetracks if they were going to get any dogs from them. Do you have that same problem that you have to like, uh, temper what you would say about about research on animals in order to maintain these relationships? That's a really good question. And, and that's a tough one that I grapple with periodically because I don't ever want to compromise what our message is. But we have had, it, it has happened where like someone from a lab looked at our at our Facebook page and was just completely outraged and offended and took things that we had said personally, even though it had nothing to do with that particular lab and wouldn't have any further dealings with us after that. And, but that's only happened once, luckily. That's really interesting because yeah. it, it's, maybe this has changed too, but I've always thought, I mean, with some reason that the research community 
is particularly hostile towards the animal rights community, even more so than any than other animal use industries. Do you think that's shifting as well? And how is that shifting? They seem to be entities that are so far apart in their perspective. Right. I think that I think that it the research industry will be the last to fall, I believe. But I but I also think that there is a shift. It's it's slower and it's more subtle and it's more I wouldn't say let me back up. I wouldn't say that's a that it's a shift like overall, but a shift amongst certain people. And I think there I think there are few. I think there are few, but I do believe there are a few that are starting to kind of have a conscience about it. Like there, we have a, I, I'm going to tell you this story because I, I love this story and sorry if, it, if, if it's a tangent, but we have a contact with a guy who works in the lab and he's worked there for like 30 years. And in the beginning, he said he never thought much of it. He just did what he was hired to do. And he now, after 30 years, he sees the repetition and the waste and the, and he says, I, I just don't think anything comes of it. He says, I understand that, that they might have like higher motives, but he said, I don't see anything coming out of this. I see, I've seen thousands of lives killed and I, and I see nothing come of it. And he said, and it kill it tears my heart apart. I can't, I can't even stand what I see and I don't know how to do anything else now. So I'm, I feel stuck here, but this is, this is what I do. So I think that there are people like that that are afraid to say it out loud. They're afraid to come out, come forward. But I think there are more and more people like that, I believe. Yeah, that that's really great to hear. And it's such an important reminder that that we shouldn't put people in a box and assume they they believe something. People are in all different places about everything. And even somebody who's been doing it for that many years has not shut down so completely that that they can't see the animals at all. It's, right. Aren't there also some jurisdictions now that have laws requiring sanctuary if it's available? Yes, for certain animals. I think for like dogs and cats. And I think possibly in some areas it's even for rabbits, but I'm not positive about that. And I think it's it's been going that way for primates for quite some time, possibly even on a national level. I'm I'm sorry to say that I haven't kept up on the laws state by state, but but there is there is a shift in that way also. That's a really good point. Yeah, and I that would also make the point that since obviously they wouldn't have to send animals to sanctuary if there isn't any sanctuary available, the the fact that you are the only sanctuary I know of, there might be others. I don't, I'm not saying there aren't, but that I that does this is problematic. There's one other one, uh, the Kindness Ranch in Wyoming, and and as far as I know, we're the only two. And do you think that it's a it's possible that if there were more, you know, it's it's such a chicken and egg uh, problem. And I don't think that's an exploitative expression. So I think it's okay to use it. <laughs> um, but, you know, do you build, like, like you said, you had to kind of, kind of go back and forth. You had to prove that you would be able to get the animals in order to get the money for the funding for the sanctuary. And, and if they're going to release, even think about releasing the animals or if legislatures are going to think about passing laws to require them to, the sanctuaries kind of have to exist. So I can see that this is a, this is a movement waiting to grow. Yeah, I think, I think it is. And I see, um, even though we're the, there's only the two sanctuaries that I know of, I see a lot of other, like other rescue groups that are, that are stepping in to help when there are animals available. Like we've, we've partnered with Ratty Rats in the Bay Area and Harvest Home in the Bay Area. And when there've been and out to pasture in, in Portland, Oregon, I know, took in some pigeons from a laboratory. And just there's different, 
different rescues that aren't focused on this, but that are starting to get calls. Another one in San Diego, Farm Animal Refuge, they get calls sometimes from laboratories to help. So so the, the, the sanctuaries don't have to be specific to animals from labs. They're starting to contact other places. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's really interesting to hear because one of the questions I was going to ask you is that these animals must sometimes have really special... I mean, I know animals coming out of farming situations are frequently in bad shape, but you must have animals who are extremely traumatized, um, who have lived for a long time in really bad conditions that really need extra special care. Do you find, I mean, is am I right? And, and is this an area in which sanctuaries have trouble taking in animals or sometimes have trouble taking in animals because of their special needs? Or do the animals just kind of, I know animals are pretty good at, at, at making do and right. <laughs> coming out. So how does that work? Well, I, f- I find that most of the times when labs are willing to release animals, they're not going to release the ones that they've, you know, chopped up and blinded and, and stuffed oven cleaner inside it. You know what I mean? Like they're just, yeah. those are the ones, unfortunately, that they're going to kill. And there's nothing that I can do about that. So I, I believe that usually the ones they release are the ones that are like control groups or some kind of like benign experiment or psychology research or that kind of thing. That said, the most difficult animals that, difficult's not quite the word, challenging, that that I've dealt with thus far are two dogs who are sitting in the room with me. I don't know if you heard one was just kind of grunting. They have major PTSD from having been in the lab. And they are destructive, unlike any other animals I've ever seen. And I believe it's because of the PTSD. Like, I can't even tell you. They like chew holes in my walls and chew holes in the floors and they've torn up couches and mattresses. And and it's not like in a just a right a normal playful dog kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's more like they're getting out their anxiety. And I remember I used to post pictures all the time of some of the damage that was being done. And somebody was like, Oh my God, how can you deal with this? Like, how can you tolerate this distraction? And I said, after they spent two years in a lab, if this is what it takes to get their anxiety out, they can tear my whole house down. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've heard similar stories from people who have adopted dogs from labs and, uh, and it, it just takes them a really, really long time. So yeah, they've settled down a bit now, finally, but it's taken years. You know, you had mentioned uh, at the federal level, there's, there, there's laws. I mean, there's a lot pertaining to chimpanzees. And and as a result, many chimpanzees have been sent to sanctuaries, and and those sanctuaries have been partially funded by federal legislation and ongoing funding. Right? Is that your dream? Like that? That's that. that this this wouldn't be a project of just us, like the animal people who take on all of the burdens of what other people have done to animals, but but they they should have to pay for for these animals to to survive. Oh, that would be amazing. That, that would be so awesome. But yeah, I've never seen it thus far in my work where they're willing to do it other than for primates. We were contacted at one point by a lab looking to place primates and they were offering a chunk of money with each one if we were able to take them, which we couldn't at that time, but that's a goal for the future. Yeah, I saw on your website that you have hopes to take primates. What are the obstacles in between now and then? Mostly money. <laughs> it's it, it's a whole other ballgame to take care of primates. You have to have staff that are experienced with primates. You have to be able to pay them. 
They have, you know, different needs as far as space and structures and that kind of thing. So, you know, it just is a whole other level financially to take care of primates. But we have kind of a section of our property that I've kind of set aside for that eventually. Yeah, that's a really exciting goal. That would that would be amazing. I know. <laughs> I can't help but imagine that they would also suffer a lot of trauma being very, like dogs, very emotional right. um, animals. Yeah. When I, Now that I've brought it up, that idea that they don't come with any money and that once again, we're just cleaning up after animal abusers. It really, I really resent it. I know I'm supposed to feel grateful that, that they let these animals go, but I also resent it. Do you ever, do you ever feel like that or do you not want to say? <laughs> no, honestly, I don't. I, I, I'm just grateful that we're able to save their lives and that that's all that matters to me. Well, I mean, it, the, raising money is is certainly certainly hard, and and the, the hardest part of this for me. But um, I, I'm just grateful that we're able to get them out. Well, you're a better person than I am. <laughs> That's clear. <laughs> so you've rescued so many animals. I think it's over a thousand. Is yes, that right, and mm-hmm. it's probably close to two at this point, which is amazing. And at the same time, a mere drop in the bucket of the animals. And as you said, you're really not allowed to get out the ones who have been hurt the worst. And uh, so, but do you, do you ever fear that the existence of sanctuaries like yours and hopefully others that will join this movement kind of papers over the reality and makes people think, oh, animals are in research and they, they serve their time and then they get out and go to sanctuary. How do you avoid being used in that way. That's a thing that I think about a lot and I struggle with sometimes because yeah, I, I certainly I certainly don't want it to appease the conscience of the research community as a whole. But if it appeases the conscience of the few who who are releasing those animals, like the ones that we have contact with, it, it, they should feel good about doing that and releasing them. And and I praise them for doing that. But you're right. Like I, I don't at any point want to paper over the reality of the hundreds of thousands and millions that don't get out. And I make sure to talk about that. Like when we do tours and stuff, like this is wonderful. Like, yes, we've saved over a thousand lives. Do you know how many lives still sit in laboratories and still suffer and are still killed every year? It's in the millions. And so I don't hesitate to point that out. Yeah, no, that must be a hard, you know, every... I can imagine sanctuaries always want to like present the good side to bring people in and to get them to feel good about what's happening. And at the same time, there's a really dark side. I mean, farm sanctuaries don't really have that problem because everybody knows that the rest of the animals are all just killed. Uh, There's no way around that. And it still doesn't stop everybody from, from, uh, (laughs) thinking that, uh, that everything's fine. Um, Right. Right. It's tough. It's it's definitely tough. We've and we've had labs that we were working with trying to get animals released and and they ultimately when they went to the higher ups they said, "Nope, we're not going to do it because we're afraid that we're going to get bad publicity if we do it." You know, and that's where I'm like, "But wait a second. Like regardless of what you think about vivisection and what I think about vivisection, like like you think that it's necessary what you're doing. I don't, but why don't we like settle where we agree?" Like can't we agree, can't anyone agree that they deserve to have a life beyond that when, when you're through? Like, I'm not going to sit here and argue with you about whether it's necessary or not. I don't believe it is. But 
can we just find the place where we can agree? Like, don't they deserve to have a life when you're done? Like, what, what what's the harm in that? Does that make sense? It makes total sense. <laughs> and I think, I think it's overcoming one of the biggest obstacles that so many animal rights activists have in thinking about any of this, that we don't have to agree with them in order to make things better. And that will, it's not going to cure everything, but it might do something for some animals. And that's not going to destroy the big message that, uh, yeah, this is fundamentally wrong. We just have to find that finding common ground is not evil. Right. It's, It's okay. Especially if it saves an animal's life. And especially if you just work to avoid being used in that way of of them, you know, going out and saying everything's fine. Now all the animals go to sanctuary. Right. You know, the animals, and maybe this has shifted to some extent, but I haven't heard anything to that effect. The animals in laboratories seem to suffer so much more than they quote unquote have to. Like the conditions are just, you know, like they could, they could keep them in the birds in flight cages and, and, and. Is it just money? Is that the only reason that that the conditions are the conditions still that bad? And is that the reason they're bad? That's a good question that I'm that I may not be the best person to answer because I don't do things like investigate the labs. I would point you to like stop animal exploitation now, Sane. If you haven't already done an interview with Michael Budke, he does so much research on the conditions and the violations and things like that. He would be a wonderful person to talk to. Yeah, and I know he does wonderful work, and I actually have featured his work sometimes oh, on the God. animal. No, not his, not him. I would love to have him on, but um, on the Animal Law podcast where we've looked into cases where he's done some of the investigation. And um, yeah, but uh, yeah, you're right. We should have him on if yeah. if we can. I think that it probably is money. I mean, I think that it's probably a combination of money and a and a lack of value for their lives, and. and there are exceptions. I'm not going to say that there aren't. I believe that there are some people like like my, our friend that, that I talked about earlier that do value their lives. But, they're, but those are far and few between. I think that most, most researchers, most labs don't value their lives. So why should they spend thousands of dollars building them a bigger, a bigger flight cage or whatever it is? Like if their lives don't matter, then why would they spend money to make them more comfortable? Yeah. I, I mean, I know I can't ask you to look into the hearts and minds of people. But I sometimes feel like if people are going to abuse animals because they have to for their career or whatever, it they almost necessarily have to develop this attitude that their lives don't matter. Right. To justify what they quote unquote have to do. And then all of a sudden their lives don't matter in so many other ways too. Right. Is it okay? Can I go back to that, uh, like backwards two seconds in that? What sure. I was saying, just to to just to illustrate the point of that, because I actually I actually almost felt kind of dirty as I was saying that I think some of them do have heart and consciences. Like I almost felt like, what am I? What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> but um, but but I I actually have seen it. Like I'm going to tell you an example of a lab that we've worked with several times and. The first time I went there to the lab and I, these animals were in the tiniest little boxes you can imagine. And and like lots of mice or rats in like little tiny boxes with no, no enrichment whatsoever. And, And it, you know, it was appalling. And the next time they released animals to us, they brought them here and actually had a tour of the sanctuary and they saw how we keep our rats and mice here. And they saw that they all have these little houses and these little wheels and all this stuff. And she's like, Oh, rats like that kind of thing. Like I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And, 
The next time I went there, they all had little houses and little wheels. And you know, that is it, both a heartwarming it, and pathetic story. I know, I know. It's such a tiny thing. But to me, it like I, I try to focus on the positive. And so I try to hold on to that heartwarming part of it. But you're right. It's also pathetic. I get it. <laughs> Tell us about the pigeons. So the pigeons came from a psychology and behavioral lab where they were doing things like, you know, training them to do things and for rewards and that kind of thing. At least that's what I understand. And they were in metal boxes with no enrichment and they weren't able to perch like pigeons do. And they lived there for 10 years. I am told that they were let out into an aviary like for some exercise time. I believe it was once a week. But now they have this huge aviary and um, and they've got all the perches they want and they don't even know what to do with them. <laughs> People just see that the, the, the ones from the lab are often stay on the ground and people are like, how come they don't go up and perch? And like the other pigeons do. And because we, we ended up getting a, several up, more pigeons from a shelter just to balance out the, the group. And the other pigeons all stay up on the perches. And people always are like, how come those, those big white ones stay on the ground? And, and, and I just think they don't know how. Mm-hmm. I tried putting, up on, putting them up on the perches many, many, many times. I put them up and they just go right back down. They just, they never had it. So they don't know how to do it. Wow. That's sad. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that they have it in other ways, very good right now, but um, yeah. Do you, do you find often that the animals that you care for have these kind of behavioral changes or, or physical changes that they just don't really recover from? I think that most do. I think most animals are very resilient. Some take longer than others, but I, I think that most do. It, it just it often takes them a while. I don't know if those pigeons are ever gonna are ever gonna learn how to perch, but for the most part, I think they do. Of all of the animals that we've rescued, I find that our pigs have recovered the the best. Like they <laughs> just came out of here and they're like, "Cool, we're out of the lab now. What's up?" Like they're just ready to party. They they don't really show any signs except for one. We have one out of we've rescued we rescued thirty one pigs from a laboratory and. Only one is still terrified of humans. Wow, that's so interesting because I, I mean, because pigs are so intelligent, uh-huh. I would think that that would make it take longer. But I guess they're intelligent enough to know when things have changed. I guess. Good for them. Yeah. I hope the pigeons get there. Yeah, I do too. So I know you're doing really a lot for these animals, and but you also mentioned that you've also taken on another role with wild animals who, for one reason or another, end up at shelters. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, that was kind of an accident. I just, I, I never intended or set out to do this, but I had some contacts at a shelter that came to trust me. And I, and I can't say, it, it's mostly one shelter, sometimes a few others, but but mostly one shelter and they trust me. And whenever they get wildlife in, so normally a lot of people don't know this, but normally shelters would kill wildlife because they aren't allowed by law to rehabilitate them because they're not licensed. They're not allowed to treat them because they're not licensed. They're not allowed to relocate them because that's illegal. And so literally, unless they have someone, a a licensed rehabber that lives within a certain mile radius, the only thing they can legally do is kill them. And and Georgina and and their trust of me, they now call me and I get them to rehabbers no matter how far we have to get them to travel. (laughs) 
and I have a little network of transporters, which is just amazing. And, and I put the word out to the network and I say, Hey, there's a, there's a raccoon at such and such shelter and this is where he needs to go. And, and someone always steps up and we get him there and we've saved thousands of, of lives that way. I, I've lost, I'm not good at keeping track of things, but it's, it's in the thousands easily. This is really a project almost anyone could take on if they could form that relationship, isn't it? Yeah, but it's a, it's a lot of work. I, I sometimes am just sitting there, te- like if nobody's available, I'm just sitting there texting, texting, texting. If, if our original group doesn't work out and I try not to post it to Facebook because I don't want to, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. We, we just kind of have this deal and it's kind of on the DL. <laughs> totally. I totally, I totally get it. So sometimes it's, I can be sitting there texting for hours and there've been times where I'm like, Oh my God, we're not going to be able to get this one. And they're like, you have five minutes left and we're going to have to euthanize and we have no choice. And I'm like, yeah. And then like something will come through every time we've never lost one. God, I would love to have a liaison. I mean, I think it's just, this is such a brilliant idea to have this liaison between Anybody who has, not just for shelters, but anybody who has, a, you know, a wild animal that they need help for. People don't even know that rehabbers exist. You know, they find an animal on their property and, and then you call, you start calling rehabbers and it's, you have to do it one by one and find one that, that's got space right. and that cares for that kind of animal. I mean, this is a whole world that needs a lot more a lot more coordination. Yeah, it's true. I feel like what I what I do for this particular shelter could be, you know, replicated. I, maybe I should write a little, like a guide about how to do this. Like maybe other people could do it in their areas. It's a lot of work though. And you've got to be ready at all times. So like the text could come at any time and, and, you, and sometimes yeah. it's three times a day. Like sometimes it'll be you know, a, a litter of baby possums and they have to go from this city to that city. And then a hawk has to go from here to there. And, and a coyote pup has to go another direction. And it's, it's logistically challenging, but, but I, I mean, there's nothing more rewarding than knowing lives are saved and that's all that matters to me. Yeah, no, it, it's a hugely important use of, of anybody's time and talents. So in addition to caring for the, the gazillion animals, <laughs> I'm glad you're doing it. So Gina, you, you've been in this movement for a while and you have a pretty complex history. Um, and sometimes you've taken pretty big risks for animals. Can you just tell us a little bit about that past? I spent many, 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 many years protesting and kind of on the more radical side and getting arrested. And I was investigated by the feds and subpoenaed to federal grand juries and all kinds of fun stuff like that. How did you evolve from, from that kind of activism to founding New Life Animal Sanctuary? Uh, quite frankly, I burned out. <laughs> I burned out on all of that and I, I, had to, I had to step away and I never thought I'd be the kind of person that would say that, but I had to just stop everything for a minute and, and just get my own life together a little bit and take care of my health a little bit for a while. And, and then once I did that, I started rethinking because I knew I would, I would never stay away. I, my life has always been dedicated to animals and I knew I was never going to go away altogether. So I, I started thinking of trying to conceive of a, of a gentler, more peaceful way of, of getting the message across. And I, and I looked at the farm sanctuaries and I thought, could we do that for animals and labs? I, you know, and at the time it seemed crazy, but here we are. 
Well, I I don't think that's really burning out. So a lot of people, <laughs> when they say they've burned out, they just walk away from it completely. And you sure didn't do that. Yeah, so I'm really glad you did what you did. And it sounds like you found a really, really important way, not only for, for you to personally help animals, but but to create some, you know, create some new ways that other people can can help animals too and model model some great behaviors. So I hope so. <laughs> what are the most important things that people can do to help animals in labs? Obviously to not buy products that are tested on animals. That's number one. Other than that, I I don't know, possibly look into if there are labs in your area and see if they're willing to release animals because you never know. Like they may have just never thought of it. Maybe they would release some animals if if they if you contacted them. Yeah, and then you have to have a sanctuary, which brings us back to the original <laughs> chicken and egg problem here. Right. So, yeah. Well, you don't have to have a sanctuary. For certain types of animals, you could rehome yeah. them, you know? Yeah. I mean, almost anybody can take a few mice and rats into their home. Right. You could also adopt from a sanctuary that rescues animals from labs like us. You could also donate, obviously. That's huge, 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 because we can't do it without donations. So who's your favorite animal? Oh, I can't pick a favorite. <laughs> that was a it was a trick question. I know. I can't pick a favorite, <laughs> but I can tell you I that one of the two dogs in the room with me that I told you that has PTSD is has my heart and soul on a platter like no other. Yeah. I, I know about those dogs. Yeah. yeah. So I love talking love talking to you. I can feel your passion coming through. Oh, um thanks. where where can people find you online? At newlifeanimalsanctuary.org. I thought of another question that I wanted to ask you. Do you have trouble getting, I mean, do you have as many animals as you want? Or would you grow if you could get the animals out? I don't believe we really have room to grow right now. Without more financial stability and, uh -huh. and volunteer stability, those two things. Oh, that was another thing. On what you can do is you can volunteer <laughs> at a sanctuary. So, um, so without more volunteer stability and more financial stability, we I don't believe we could take any more at this time. But but eventually I hope to. Well it's both bad news and good news. It's bad news because it would be great for you to take more, but it's good news that you are managing to get enough animals out of labs to fill up your sanctuary. So I'm really glad to hear that because I I thought it would be harder. I thought that in the beginning too. But it's and, and just to be clear, we do have some animals that are not from from labs. It, that's always been our focus. And in the beginning, I thought it would be exclusive, but there there have been exceptions along the way, and and that mm -hmm. just happens. I've had to learn. So so yeah. not, not every animal here is from a lab. Yeah. Well, animals happen. We all know that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, thanks for taking care of them. Thanks so much for what you do. I find your work really moving, and um, thanks for telling us about it today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's an honor. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising.
The aggression and hypocrisy of devoted vegans is damaging the movement. We must take the public with us. Uh, okay, this is from The Independent in the UK. And I'm not sure exactly what, what movement this woman is talking about. She seems to think that she's part of it, but I don't get it. Her name is Matilda Martin. And she starts off by saying, in order to engage with people about the impact of the human diet on the planet, so I guess environmental, I don't know, we must start small and go for the softer approach of the flexitarian diet. Okay, we know where she's coming from. And she is pretty vehement, and she trots out a lot of arguments that I really thought we were done with. First of all, she says that, you know, veganism is growing. I don't know how, given advocates like her. And, you know, you can find vegan meals at restaurants and supermarkets, et cetera, et cetera. However, she contends, being a vegan isn't straightforward. Actually, it seems pretty straightforward to me. But she goes on to say, getting all the nutrients and vitamins, particularly B12, you need from a vegan diet is tougher than it would be from a flexitarian one. Well, bullshit. In the first place, it's really easy to get B12 on a vegan diet because all you have to do is pop a little pill every day. And that's what you should do. And it's really simple. And two, like loads and loads of meat eaters also need to pop that little pill if they want to stay healthy, I don't particularly care, but, uh, you know, people should take care of themselves and they should take B12 because they're highly deficient in it. Loads of meat eaters are deficient in B12. And three, am I on three? I'm not sure. The way that animals get B12 is to pop a little pill. They take supplements. They don't get it from, from anywhere in natural either. Ultimately, you're, you're taking a pill. So just take your pill and stop spouting this nonsense. But, she goes on to say, a lack of nutrients is not the only thing harming vegans and the vegan movement. The aggression to be found in some devoted groups and individuals, I think she's talking about you guys, as well as the hypocrisy that this sometimes exposes are a terrible advert for veganism. You want to know what she's talking about here? Oh my God, I could just shoot myself. Soy. Yes. And and she's also adding in avocados. I don't know whether vegans eat more avocados than other people, but uh, she seems to think they do. For example, while many involved in the movement berate others for eating unsustainably, the consumption of foods such as avocados and soy-based products, poster foods of the vegan diet. You know, like I said, soy, yeah, it is kind of a poster food of the vegan diet. But avocados, you know, we all eat an avocado once in a while. Meat eaters are vegans. I don't know whether it's a poster food. Anyway, they are hugely damaging to the environment and have a massive carbon footprint. Oh, my God. She's trotting out this nonsense, this absolute nonsense about how soy is causing widespread deforestation and, and displacement of indigenous peoples. Well, yeah, that's true. All of that soy, which is grown to be animal feed, as we all know. She missed that lesson. She doesn't, she's not aware of it. Unbelievable. These arguments, will they never die? Oh, she also talks about how many of their industries in the UK are built on dairy or meat production. Well, it's not many of their industries. It's their dairy and meat production industries. And to halt production in these areas altogether would create mass unemployment and severely damage the economy. In the first place, 
if you can get everybody to stop eating meat and dairy tomorrow, that would be good. <laughs> you, know, you probably can't. So let's slow it down. Let's let's give those people jobs or a universal basic income. That's fine with me. And, you know, those jobs are going to be there because, as is so obvious, we're still going to have to have food. So, the, you know, whatever jobs go away in the incredibly uh, poor employment provided by the dairy and meat production will obviously be made up for in producing other food because, you know, people got to eat. This is perhaps my favorite part. She suggests that to be more effective, start with a suggestion that people have one or two vegetarian or vegan meals a week. All right, that's really going to change the world, isn't it? All right. That was a bad one. Build Back Better Without Beef. This is from Amanda Radke from Beef Daily Column. You know, my favorite. She's pointing out that all of these people are using this Build Back Better language. You know, President-elect Joe Biden says it, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. I didn't know like anybody was using it except Joe Biden, but you know, I trust her on this. <laughs> Governor Cuomo, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, and Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon uh, have all said it. She points out that the World Economic Forum is also using the same phrase. Now, why is she upset with the idea that we should build back better? Because she went through this paper that was produced by the World Economic Forum on, on many, many different topics, and she searched for the word beef. And was she upset with what she found? Curious about what would be considered green, I searched for beef on the website. Can you imagine what I found? Articles discussing cattle production, greenhouse gas emissions, reducing beef consumption, and replacing animal proteins with plant-based alternatives. Thanks to investors from the packers like Tyson and Cargill transitioning to more diverse protein companies. God, I wish she was right. I don't know. If after reading through this website, alarm bells aren't ringing for you, that I'm afraid we aren't on the same page. And you know what, Amanda? We are not on the same page. That is for sure. We're not even in the same book. We're not even in the same library. If this is how Biden and cooperating countries plan to build back better, then I'm afraid we are in for a very long road ahead. This is what's going to be the implications here. Plan to have the government decide how much beef you can eat. Plan to have the government tell you which businesses are essential and which will be squeezed out and closed down. Plan to have the government dictate to you blanket health recommendations, travel restrictions, and worse. Also, plan to have the government tell you exactly how to live your lives, even if it is to your own demise for the, quote, greater good. Like getting a little carried away, Amanda? <laughs> That's, that was really hilarious. She's upset. She plans to fight it tooth and nail and maintaining our freedoms to farm, to own livestock, to run family-owned businesses. Like, who's, who's against family-owned businesses? All right. To manage our land and to choose the diets that best fit our needs should be paramount. Saddle up. This is going to be a tough battle. Well, I'm not going to saddle up, but, you know, I'm ready to fight. So, yeah. All right. From Drovers.com, another industry site. Wild horse management and costs gone awry. This is by one John Navil Nalivka. And his head recently exploded. No, it nearly exploded because he read in a recent decision, a judge in Eastern Oregon awarded $180,000 in litigation costs to groups of animal advocates in a wild horse lawsuit. What? Simply put, the issue of wild horses from the perspective of both management and litigation has gone awry. It doesn't say why 
they were awarded a lit- litigation costs. Just the fact, no matter what it is that happened here, just the fact has him totally freaked out. He points out that the 95,000 horses that are on the quote-unquote range, federal ranges across the Western U.S., calling them ranges almost like defines them as as being there to serve the industry because what they really want them to be ranges for are not wild horses and burros. They want them to be ranges for, of course, cattle. Because of these wild horses, there's been all of this litigation and taxpayer cost. Well, if you didn't have the litigate, stop litigating and we won't have, the taxpayers won't have to pay. And range depredation. Since 1971, when the Wild Horse and Burrow Act was signed into law, if left to their better judgment and science, I might give the BLM the benefit of the doubt to manage the horses so as to limit the impact on the taxpayer into the range. I think he would give them the benefit of the doubt to ignore the Wild Horse and Burrow Act. That's what he would like them to do. However, that has not been the case, particularly when the cattle free by 93 crowd is brought into the debate. The wild horses have only provided fodder to their argument of taking cattle off the federal rangelands. Well, yes, yes, yes. I don't know whether horses, there's any validity to the to the concept that horses do damage to the range. That's not within my my knowledge base, but I sure as hell know that cattle do. So according to John, he's not optimistic that there will be a solution to this issue in the near future. Well, that's good news to me because I always am worried that the solution that's going to be proposed and put into effect is to just kill all the horses. So I hope that's not going to happen in the near future or ever. And I don't want to kill all the cattle, but they're going to kill them, aren't they? And then I, I would really, really like them not to be replaced. Oh God, what a world, what a world. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end-of-year fundraising. We're excited to announce that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled, dollar for dollar, up to $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our Barnyard Benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we're hoping to raise $60,000 total for the year-end. That's $20,000 from our Barnyard Benefactors, 20,000 from an anonymous donor and 20,000 collectively from you. If you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private flock Facebook group, and an invitation to our weekly Friday flock Zoom meetings for a fun and engaging conversation with me and Marianne and others in the flock, plus special guests. Plus, if you donate $100 or more, I'll send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. So if you appreciate our hen house and if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and our resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be tripled contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org slash donate. That's ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Another great way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there. Or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at ourhenhouse across the board. 
If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using our handouts as your favorite charity. And we do get those uh, disbursements and they help a lot. So thank you for those of you who do. And of course, tell your friends about us. Tell your enemies about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to the wonderful Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Herron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. Thanks to our graphic designer, Lori Johnston from Two Trick Pony. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands and listen to podcasts.